0: the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. So today we're actually starting a little bit differently. Um, I wanted to read read a section of scripture. So if if you can either follow along or you can just listen along. Uh, In Acts 11, I'll be reading from the ESV, there's just a really interesting story that a lot of people just pass right over because it seems to be I don't know. It seems to be something you could pass over, but there's a lot of gems in here, and we're going to be talking about this um, today. So Acts 11, starting with verse 19, I'll read a few verses. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus." there. So this is a really fascinating story. So persecution arose, and so you're in, you know, right in the in the heart of Jerusalem, where basically it all happened. And so that's where the Christian church is born. And persecution started, and then people just started fleeing to all the different corners, all the different cities. And uh, what's interesting is that this wasn't some grand missions experiment. They weren't like, we're going to go reach the world, you know, two by two, and go out sharing. They just fled. They were trying to make their living and, and just keep alive, right? So they went to Antioch, which is the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. It'd kind of be like getting persecuted here and then just going somewhere that's, you know, somewhat nearby, but a bigger city. Like, imagine Chicago. So this is where they're fleeing to, is the kind of the Chicago of their region. And they weren't thinking globally. They were, they were fleeing and just trying to make their living and then sharing with whoever they came into contact with. And you can imagine a lot of these Israelite Jews, Palestinian Jews, were not comfortable around anyone who was Greek or sort of uh, cosmopolitan or global citizens. They were really only talking to other Jews in a synagogue. So that's why I was saying that they wouldn't share with anyone except for Jews but there were a few who were really comfortable with what's called Hellenists. If you're ever reading through the New Testament and you read about God-fearers or Greek-speaking Jews, that's what a Hellenist is. Uh, Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, he was a Hellenist, the writer of uh, the letter to the Hebrews. We don't actually know who that is, but the writer of it clearly was a, a Hellenist based on the way he wrote and his training. A Hellenist is sort of a weird middle ground between a Jew and a pagan. So imagine you've got all these uh, Jews who have lost their traditional Hebrew culture. They don't speak Hebrew or Aramaic. They don't live anywhere near Jerusalem, but they're still Jewish in faith. But they're very comfortable in like the pagan Greek world. That's what a Hellenist is. And so there are some of these Jews from Cyprus that are in Jerusalem, and then they flee. And going to Antioch is kind of like going home. They're in this very... You know, secular or pagan city again, and it's comfortable for them to re- reach out to these Greek or pagan Hellenist Jews. Um, so what they do is they start, you know, spreading the gospel among this this group, and the like the sort of the Hebrew speaking Jews. There were some conversions in that group, but the Hellenists were coming to Christ like crazy. They became Christians like crazy all over the ancient world, and as you can imagine. Whenever a crazy revival starts to happen, whoever used to have the keys, who, who used to have the power is kind of like, what's, you know, what's going on over there? So the church in Jerusalem hears that all these Hellenists are coming to you know, be Christians, and they're like, hmm, those guys, those, kinda, those half-breeds, like those Greek-speaking Jews who are kind of you know, in the middle, comfortable in both camps. Um, so they're like, we better get somebody over there to make sure that everything is okay, to make sure that there's no heresy or something weird happening. So I can just see this. All the, the Jews in Jerusalem are like, well, who do we send to this Greek you know, Hellenist city? Uh, and then not only that, but this, this revival that had started there happened largely because of people from Cyprus and Cyrene. So they're like, well, who do we send to go check out what's going on? Maybe we should find someone from Cyprus. So they send Barnabas, and that's where he enters this story. He was from Cyprus, but had been living in Jerusalem. He was one of the best people they had, But he was also a Jew who had spent most of his life among Greeks and Gentiles. So he was comfortable. Imagine being like, just like being an Orthodox Jew in New York City today, right? You're going to be a lot more comfortable with the world than, say, if you were right in the heart of, I don't know, Jerusalem today. So uh, they send him there. He was more helpful than, say, some Palestinian Jew who's like, I don't know how to speak Greek even. What do I do here? Um, The Bible describes Barnabas in our reading as a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And it also says that a great many people were added to the Lord. And then what's funny, and a lot of people miss this, we'll get to this in a second. You, you'd got to think, well, what does Barnabas do when he gets there? If he's this you know, great person, they're kind of sending him to solve the problem. Does he hunker down and kind of claim this city as like, I'm going to start teaching, we're going to start a you know, monastery, a seminary, a church, we're going to have this whole missions movement that starts here? He doesn't do any of that. Instead, he leaves. He gets there, and he's like, I should go. Uh, A lot of people miss this in the text. So the verse says, um, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And then it goes on, and I want to skip the name here, but it says, so Barnabas went to look for somebody else. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. So what's happening here, you have to kind of read between the lines. Luke is being very respectful here in writing Acts, and that's why a lot of people miss it, because Barnabas is an early church hero, and he doesn't want to take a dig at Barnabas, but what's clear here is Barnabas knew he was not enough for the job. So he shows up, the spirit was already doing something amazing. It wasn't Barnabas that made this revival happen. He was just sort of responding to it. The church sent him there. So the spirit was doing something amazing, um, but all these cultures mixed together had a lot of issues. So it doesn't say it in this text, but all throughout the rest of the New Testament, you see that the Greeks, the Jews, and the Hellenists were constantly arguing, just trying to figure out what does it mean for non-Jews to believe in the Jewish Messiah? They didn't have these sort of strict categories of like Jew or Christian or pagan. It wasn't so, it, it was a lot more fluid. So all these Gentiles were like, yeah, we believe in the Jewish Messiah, and all the Jews were getting all confused. It was just a big mess. So if you read between the lines, you can see that Barnabas arrives, and even though everything's going great, he doesn't really know what to do. So he goes to look for another. So he says, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Well, I go find somebody else who can handle these problems. So he goes and looks for for somebody else. Um, let's see I'm, I'm skipping ahead in my notes here. Some of the debates that were happening in these communities were, for a pagan, for a Greek to believe in the Jewish Messiah, do they have to become a full-fledged Jew first? And you know people were saying no. And then they were asking the question, like, what parts of the Old Testament are normative or or binding for a pagan convert? And a lot of the Hebrew-speaking Jews were saying, well, all of it. If you want to believe in the Jewish Messiah, you have to be a complete Jew, just like we are. And others are like, no, no, no. The Old Testament was given to covenant Israel. It was given to Israel. And these people are coming from outside Israel, so they have a different standard, a different setup, a different covenant. And so this was it, it all got really confusing really fast. And in Barnas, Barnabas's humility, realizing that this was kind of above his intellectual pay grade, it was his humility that ended up bringing us the single most influential Christian theologian who has ever lived. You see, Barnabas, a little while before, had met this brilliant Jew who lived not very far away at all. He'd been trained in all the highest schools of the time, but he had spent his whole life working with pagans and Greeks. He knew pagan philosophy, a lot of it by heart. He knew Greek teaching, plays, philosophy. And he had likely spent, we don't know this for sure, but given his trade, we know that he had likely spent countless hours just chatting and debating with a lot of cosmopolitan and global travelers because he sold tents. Now, when we think of tents, we think of campers. But these tents were like large merchant tents. Like if you're going to travel the world for three years, you go from China and you buy what they have, and then you come sell it somewhere else and make a profit. You set up these large tents to keep the rain off of your goods. And there's these huge, you know, leather Um, tanned tents so that the water wouldn't get on their stuff. So he was constantly working with this group of people who were traveling the whole world and Barnabas had met him a while before. Uh, Half of you probably know who I'm talking about already. Uh, So Barnabas had seen this guy debate and teach and reason with Jews and Greeks before and he knew then what all of Christian history would since confirm that this tent maker was a theological genius and uniquely made to deal with these exact problems. Problem was this guy lived in Tarsus. Now Tarsus, thanks to Google Maps, is 136 miles from Antioch. Uh, and he would have had to go on foot, so he would have taken about six to eight days. The general rule of thumb is 20 miles per day, so he would have taken six to eight days to get there, another six to eight to get back. So he goes to Tarsus, finds this brilliant man, and basically begs him or asks him to come to Antioch, where this weird you know, cultural milieu was happening, and help them figure it out. So this character, this guy from Tarsus goes there and begins to teach every day for a year. And the rest is kind of history. They end up turning the world upside down from that church. Um, He ends up becoming more influential. This person that was pulled from Tarsus ends up becoming more influential in church planting and missions than all of the other disciples combined. And his name, this is where we'll all catch up on the same page. His name was Saul. Saul of Tarsus, but most of us have come to remember him as Paul the Apostle. Uh, Interestingly enough, a lot of people have this this story that he was Saul, and then he became a Christian, and then he changed his name to Paul. That's actually not true. Uh, He had two names. His name was Saul, and his name was Paul, whether he was dealing with the Romans and the Greeks, or dealing with the Hebrews. He went by one or the other. He was always Paul, and he was always Saul. It's just that his whole life ends up in the Greek pagan world, so he always goes by Paul. Uh, So anyway, a lot of people don't know that. They have that sort of conversion story. Uh, Paul never saw himself as a convert. He just saw himself as a Jew who realized the Messiah had come. There was no distinction between Christianity and Judaism. When he was alive, it was just Jews who saw that the Messiah had come, and Jews who did not yet believe that that Christ was the Messiah, but they were all Jews. Uh, So anyway, he would go on to write a quarter of the New Testament, half the total number of books in the New Testament, and it all started in Antioch, and it was there where they were worshiping and fasting and praying that the Holy Spirit basically spoke or moved the group and said, set apart Barnabas and Saul and then commissioned them to start what would end up becoming the, the worldwide church, just the most successful human institution that's ever been. So why do I tell this story? I say this to show that in Antioch they did not know what they were doing, and that was okay, they weren't theologians they didn't know how to work out all of the sticky le- all the sticky details and even their leader when barnabas showed up even he didn't know but it didn't stop the fruit from happening they were still people were coming to christ in droves they just didn't know how to deal with some of the sticky stuff and so i was thinking that you know we often give too much credit to these paul and barnabas characters for like making it happen. The thing is, that was already happening. They just sent Paul and Barnabas in as the fixers. Like, well, it's starting to get pretty messy. Let's send somebody in there. But the Spirit was already moving among just regular believers like you and me there. And they weren't missionaries. They weren't there in order to reach people specifically for the gospel. Like, that was their bread and butter. The, like, like, that was their job. They were living normal lives, trying to not get persecuted, not get hunted down and stoned in public like had happened to Stephen. But this is how revival begins. Um, you go there, you live life with your neighbors, you love them, and people naturally share what they care about. And then people start to come to Christ. And then later, they're like, well, I guess we should figure this all out. We should figure out these sticky questions. So I, I share this to show that revival actually doesn't happen because of great leaders. It happens because the spirit is moving and because regular people are doing really good work just with their neighbors, Neighbors being loving, sharing the gospel. That's how it spreads. So sometimes when I talk to people about sharing the good news, they're like, well, you know, I I never went to seminary, or I don't really know the Bible super well, or I don't know all the, you know, I'm not a good debater, and it's just like, that's the last thing you need to be to be an effective witness uh, for the good news. I think Antioch is a great example of this, and because of this, because you don't need the answer, because what you need rather is just to love your neighbor and develop good community what we're doing now is, we're actually, we just turned six months old. So like, yay, capital city, right? So this is our, I forget which service, but this is our, we're, we're six months old in a few days. And I don't know if you, if you were with us from the, the launch team trainings and all that, there are many things that we've set out to do. And so far we've started all of them, except for one. And the one that we haven't started is what we call our two by two ministries. And it's the, the idea of getting out into the city just jumping into something that you enjoy doing, just some club—not even some faith-based thing. But if you really enjoy running, or if you like reading, or board games, we have the St. Paul, like Mr. Board Game Leader Man, right here. Um, if you enjoy that, that you just jump in and be a part of that, and show up, and be a good member, and, and love your neighbor, and then you develop real friendships with people who might not know the good news. And then after three, six, you know, nine months, you can start to build. Uh, real relationships, you can start inviting them into your home. And that's where the real gospel sharing can happen. Not like some trite, you know, I'm on the corner and I'm trying to like hit you with some verses or something. It's just through real friendship where that can happen. So today we are officially starting to roll out our two by two ministry. The last thing that we were waiting for starts today. Uh, part of the reason that we waited until now is that Minnesota summers are, wow, I mean, if you've never, if you've never like tried to run a church organization, and then run into the Minnesota summer, it is quite the the thing to discover. Uh, So just a lot of Minnesota shuts down over the summer, a lot of clubs and organizations stop, students are gone, so we wanted to wait until the fall to start that. So one pillar, we'll do a little bit of we're doing a little bit of vision casting. This is strange for me. It's a weird spot for me to be in because I'm almost always just diving in, doing what's called expository teaching, just always diving in super deep into a story in Scripture and then talking about the meaning. Now here, it's a strange place for me to be talking about, like, our vision as Capital City based on Scripture still, but um, just a strange place for me to find myself in. So a little bit of review Our, our two pillars that we're built on in terms of our outreach. One thing that when we were planning to, to plant Capital City Church, one thing that we noticed that is really lacking in, I think, the Christian church is mercy ministry. Having Christians actually spend a significant amount of their time, resources, care, their prayer time, praying for the poor, praying for you know what's called the least of these, immigrants, refugees, those who are in prison, those who are mentally ill, whatever it might be there's very little of that in, in my estimation going on. So we wanted, we thought, what would it look like to have a church where every member is committed in some way or another to mercy ministry? And that's why we built that right into the small group model, because we really believe that to follow Jesus is actually to follow him in his example. And he spent so much of his life doing mercy ministry. Not that that's what you do to, to be saved or to be a Christian, but there's so many people who are like just intellectually assent, right? They say like, "Yes, I believe Jesus is the son of God," but then they don't live like him. And we don't believe that that's what Jesus has called us to do. That he has actually called us to follow his example. He said, "As the Father sends me, so I send you." And he told us why he was sent. He, he was, one, he was sent to be a ransom for many and to die for our sins, but he was also sent to liberate the oppressed, to give sight to the blind, to preach good news to those who are poor. And that's the part that people forget. He was actually sent to do those things. And he says, As I was sent, so I send you. So we believe this is part of the Christian walk. I'm not saying it's how you're justified, but that it's part of what it means to be a Christian. So that pillar, we're, we're making good good headway on. We, we still have room to grow and we're trying to figure out our, our mercy ministries. And uh, that's just sort of a review. That's not what this sermon is, is about. But I think that, that pillar of our outreach we've actually been doing a good job at. Um, but the other pillar, we haven't really been able to start as well. And that's where it, it, we come to this other spot where we thought, man, I think the church is really lacking in this. Um, many Christians, this is what bothered us, is that many Christians spend almost no time at all outside of you know, rubbing shoulders at work uh, we spend almost no time with non-Christians. There are graphs out there as to once somebody becomes a Christian, after about two years, they spend almost none of their time. It's like so much of their time with non-Christians, and then they become a Christian, and it just like drops off completely because we, we surround ourselves with people who are like us, right? Um, we surround ourselves in a bit of a bubble. And uh, the reason that people come to know Jesus is not because of some sort of rational debate, or like, I was convinced by some sort of you know, debater or some book. Normally, it's being involved in a loving community where people around you are being a good witness, right? Salt and light, and there's this cross-pollination of community ideas happening. And we were just convicted, as Capital City Church, we wanted to break the cycle of Christians not really spending much time with non-Christians. We want some of your best friends to be those who don't know Jesus. And we want, as a community, as for St. Paul to be the city on a hill, to be the light for those around us. So how can we do this? How can we actually get to know non-Christians? It's like, well, it seems so, so simple. It's like we actually need to spend time with people who don't consider themselves Christians. But you don't need some grand plan of evangelism. You don't need to be a theologian. You don't even need to know the Bible super well. But what you need to do is to spend time with other people. You need to love them for who they are, not just as some sort of goal. Um, And you need to be the person that they think of when, say they have a success, they want to share it with you because they know that you won't be jealous or try to, you know, sometimes like you have a friend who, uh, Who's not happy when you succeed because they're always in competition with you, right? So if someone has a success, you want to be the first person they call. But also if they fail, if they have a, you know, if someone in their family gets sick or if school's going poorly for them, you also want to be the person that they think of reaching out to because you're a real friend, right? You're not just a party buddy or something. You're somebody who really cares for them. And that's what we want to be to those around us. We want to get to know them. We want to have them over for meals, over for coffee, you know, out for a bike ride or whatever it is you do. So how can we do this? Um, In the ancient world, they almost had it easier. So their homes were super tiny. They had about 100 and 150 square foot homes. Think of that, 100, 150 square foot homes for six or seven people. It was basically just a shelter to, to make some food in or to sleep in. And then their entire day was outside. Um, It was warm enough, at least in the Mediterranean, where they spent almost their entire day outside. And when you spend your entire day outside in the market, you just get to know tons of people. And that's one of the reasons that Christianity was able to to spread so quickly, is that people spent their whole life outside in the market, always just chit-chatting with those around them. But today, people spend most of their lives in their own home or at a place of work. Basically, they go to different institutions and then they find themselves in the door and they, they close it behind them, right? You, you kind of choose where you want to go as a consumer and then you go there in your car and then you're there. There's no just freewheeling, like you're outside at a market all day. And so in order to reach those around us, um, we, we found that one of the most effective things is to purposefully plug into the built environment around you through clubs, sports, you know, games, whatever it might be, according to the things that you actually like. You know, the reason that these Hellenists were coming to Christ like crazy is because there were people who were comfortable with them, who spent their life with them, and who were sharing with them. And the church today doesn't spend much of their life at all with non-Christians or people who scare them, people who are different, people who have different beliefs, uh, people who come from different backgrounds. So today, we're actually using this this sermon time, which um, normally, again, we we do something more like a narrative. But today, we're actually commissioning and kicking off this two-by-two ministry. So I commission you to plug into the neighborhood, to plug into St. Paul somewhere, wherever you live, and to start getting involved in something you're interested in. And now, here's the important thing. I'm not asking you to sacrifice, right? So much of what the church wants, whether you plug into mercy ministry or something else, is a sacrifice. It's something you put on your calendar and then someone reaches out to you later and they're like, hey, do you want to do this really fun thing? And you're like, ooh, I've I've got this church thing. You know, that's kind of how you you can view it sometimes. So this is not what I'm asking you to do. It's not a church program. This is something that I want want you to love and, and thrive at. So like, Something, something you know, fun, something that you need somebody to give you an excuse to do. Um, you know, what's that thing, what's that hobby that you have wanted to do or pick back up again or learn that you haven't done for years because either the time commitment or the finance commitment? And here's, a, here's a trick. It can be the best of both worlds. If it costs a bit of money and a bit of time, you can tell yourself, well, hey, this is ministry for me to do this thing. But then if somebody from church wants you to get involved in some ministry and your time is already short, you could be like, no, this is my two-by-two two thing. Like, i gotta, I got to protect this time and do this, you know, table tennis tournament or whatever it is. Uh, <laughs> you can just say that and I'll, I'll give you a pass. Um, so make it something you really want to do, um, something that will help you to get to know non-Christians. Uh, because more than anything, even as silly as it is, just joining a rock climbing club or like a book club or whatever it is, that will help you more than almost anything else to bear fruit in terms of sharing the good news of Jesus. Not that you're going there with this you know, Bible-thumping idea or anything, but just over the, the course of months and years, this will naturally be shared. I think the reason a lot of people think of this that The reason you're always having spiritual conversations in college is because all of college is like a bunch of two-by-two ministries, right? Your your whole life, you're in like 17 different associations, and you're coming to meet other people all the time. And then all of a sudden, you find yourself maybe 28 or 30, and you're like, I've met five people in the last month, you know, rather than five people this morning, right? That's that's the difference between college and then entering your 30s. So don't be too bummed, college kids, no. Uh, But yeah, I think that's two-by-twos are just one very small way to almost artificially recreate some of that cross-pollination of getting to meet other people. So what have you been itching to do, but you haven't convinced yourself to make time for? Uh, for me, I've always wanted t- more time to write. Um, a lot of you, I-, I think a lot of people have been wanting an excuse to like take dance classes or build things don't ever ask me to build anything, but some of you are good at building things. Uh, pottery, homebrewing clubs, hey, that would be a cool club to be a part of. Running clubs, exercise classes, I mean, whatever it is that you would like to do but haven't quite picked yourself up to do, um, I want to encourage you to jump into it. Um, I think some people, some people get scared by something like this because they're like, oh, I've seen people who do this kind of weird thing where they're like, come on too strong, and that's not what That's not what we're saying. We don't want you to, like, jump in and, like, hey, do you guys know who Jesus is? We just want you to, like, jump into the community and enjoy what you do and make friends. And then as the months go on, uh, have natural conversations about your faith, what you did over the weekend, invite people out. Um, Yeah, so you can invite them over for coffee or go invite them to a grill-out or an Oscar party, a, a white elephant gift exchange. Those are actually, those are real... Successes. You invite someone to a white elephant gift exchange, they will not turn you down. Uh, everyone loves them. Just don't bring the iPod. Anyone? Anyone? Uh, so yeah, I, I just say be on mission. And if, if possible, try to do it near enough where if you invite someone to come to Capital City Church, it's actually feasible, right? If you're, if you're going to be 45 minutes away, it's, it's probably not going to happen. But if you could be somewhat within the, you know, the metro or close to St. Paul, that'd be ideal. Um, so here are the goals. Dustin Logie said this really, he put, put this together. He said, join something, make relationships with somebody, and then do something outside that group. So say you want to join some kind of exercise class. Join it with a friend and be productive. Show up and actually be a good contributor and make friends. And maybe after a few weeks go by, you start inviting people out to some sort of game or, you know, go get a tea or a beer or something else afterward. Um, and, yeah, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Oh, man. It'd be fun to have a mic out there to like, hear what people are saying. No, um, Yeah, so it, one of the big goals that we have is to actually not just go to these groups, but then make real friendships that continue outside of these groups. So say you go to an exercise class. Actually invite those people to, again, to your white elephant thing at Christmas time or something. Start to make real relationships with these people outside of those clubs. Go and be the church. So here's the the commission, is begin thinking about what you might want to join. We're going to be following up with this through our small groups, so you have a little bit of time to think about it. But be thinking, these are all kind of loose boundaries, but think about what kind of thing you might want to join. And think about a partner that you could join this with. So uh, you don't have to have a partner, but it's ideal to have one. Uh, I think going out two by two makes good sense. And here's another thing. Um, If you have children, ideally... It could still work out, but if you have children, ideally, your partner wouldn't be your spouse, because then you're always trying to figure out babysitting or swaps. Try to partner with somebody uh, who's, who's not your spouse so that the babysitting is always taken care of. But again, there's exceptions for that. Um, and also, just uh, find someone who would also be maybe somewhat similarly interested in the, in the thing that you want to do. And then join. So some of you have already done this. Some people got really excited about the vision. And even though we didn't officially kick this off as a church, some people started this a long time ago with like spike ball or uh, book clubs and some other things. So way to go for you guys. You guys are early adopters. Um, But yeah, be thinking about these things and we'll be following up through small group. Think about what you might be able to join. Um, It's not a mandatory thing, but I would love to see at least half of our church or more join these clubs and participate regularly. The early church did not know what they were doing. They didn't have their stuff figured out at all. But what they had was the love of Jesus, and they spent gobs of time with their neighbors. And if we can spend more, the, the fix isn't evangelizing smarter or sharing smarter. The fix is spend time with people who aren't Christians. It's encouraging that you don't have to know what Paul knew in order to be effective for the gospel, right? So I just want to say live it, love the gospel. Figure out some of the theological sticky stuff later, but go and be with people who don't know Jesus and be salt and light to them. It's not a church program. It's how how Christians are meant to spend our whole lives. So again, join something, make relationships with somebody, and then do something outside of that group. Let me uh, close with this scripture, a little shorter tonight. And I'm not diving crazy deep into like ancient Babylonian archives. It tends to be a little shorter sermon. Uh, (laughs) All right, let me read this. Um, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest." Let me, uh, let me pray to close us. Lord, we, we thank you for this model that you send people out two by two. We thank you for how the early church grew and that they had no clue uh, what they were doing or what the right theology was or what the answers to even these simple questions were, but they were just uh, good examples of your love um, and that they shared you effectively with their, their neighbors. We pray that you would help us to do the same and that we'd have a lot of fun while doing it. Uh, just help us now worship as we close out the night. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West Seventh Community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church, STP, or visit our website for more information at CapitalCitySt.Paul.com. Our music today, Slow Burn, was written and produced by Kevin McLeod under the Creative Commons 4.0 license.